you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Genesis 42. Genesis chapter 42. We will touch on a few verses in chapter 41, but if you get to Genesis 42, that's a good place to land. Genesis 42. So last week, last week we hit on what would seem to be uh, the climax of the Joseph narrative. So sort of the, the peak of what's going on. We had been with Joseph through the hatred of his brothers as they sold him. We've been with him in slavery and in prison. And then we watched last week, he just sort of rose so quickly in a matter of hours to become second in command over all of Egypt. He interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and, and this looks like the mountaintop, as it were, for our friend Joseph. But what we find here um, is that we've got a good number of chapters left in the book of Genesis. And some of the most poignant scenes in Joseph's life are still to come as he is reunited with his brothers. And as he is reunited with the father who for the past 20 years has assumed that this son of his is dead. As you look at, at Joseph and this story, Joseph's brothers, they just have to come back into this story. Because any good story always deals with the people that have wronged the hero. Uh, there's some sort of judgment that has to, to come in, or, or maybe some sort of grace that the hero will extend. I don't know about you, maybe this is wrong of me, but sometimes in a book or in a movie, sometimes the best point is when the villain gets what's coming to him. You know, when when this guy who has wronged the hero, justice is finally served. Or maybe the hero extends grace to this person who has wronged him throughout the story. And that's an amazing part of the story, too. And within the story of Joseph, as he sits in this place of power, we have to wonder what's going to happen to all these people that wronged him along the way. In my mind's eye, I wonder if there was a conversation between Joseph and the cupbearer. The cupbearer who had forgotten him. He said, I'll tell Pharaoh about you. And he forgot. You might imagine the cupbearer coming to Joseph at some point and saying, hey, Joseph, I mean, my bad, man. I, I got back to the palace. I got busy with my cupbearing thing. And it just slipped my mind. But, you know, everything worked out okay. So, you know, I guess we're okay, right? Everything's okay, Joseph. Or maybe Potiphar's wife. What's going to happen with her? Was there a moment in those years of famine where where she came maybe her head hung low she came before joseph looking for grain to feed her family and maybe without words joseph just sort of freely filled her baskets with the grain of egypt and blessed this woman who had cursed him i don't know i don't know what happened but we can imagine about those things what we don't have to imagine about is what happened to joseph's brothers and how the meeting between joseph and his brothers went because from now until the end of genesis we get a long look at these interactions and having seen this change that occurs in Joseph from when he was 17 till now he's in his late 30s, having watched that happen, Joseph is looking for the answer to a question. And the question is, have my brothers changed? We're going to watch Joseph test his brothers. He's going to prod and push them and see what sort of comes out of their hearts. Is this, are they still prideful and, and selfish? Or do they show fruits of repentance? Are they... Are they hardened against the conviction of sin or have the years softened them so that they are convicted by the way that they wronged their brother? I mean, Joseph is no longer the guy that he was 
17 years old, sort of brash and prideful. But we have to wonder, are the brothers any different? Have the years changed these brothers? The brothers of Joseph are not, are not going to be sold into slavery, but they're going to face some trials. They're going to be brought face to face with their own guilt and their sin, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to be painful. But they're going to teach us something. They're going to teach us that we should welcome the light of conviction into our lives. That's our big idea. We'll think of, think of it as a command. Welcome the light of conviction into our lives. I imagine that most of us haven't, don't, don't have hidden sins that are on par with Joseph's brothers. Uh, maybe you do. But big or small, we are sinners all. And, and while our sinful hearts want to bury all of our faults and all of our failures and never acknowledge them before God or before anyone else, what the brothers teach us is that we should welcome the light of conviction into our lives. We should be so glad when God shines a light and shows us our sin. Now, before we get into the specifics of, of chapter 42, uh, we want to look briefly at this broader story of what's happening in Egypt and the surrounding nations. We left off last week in chapter 41, verse 52. Um, Joseph had risen to power. We watched him prosper in the land of Egypt during those seven years of plenty, and we saw the way that he gathered up one-fifth, 20% of all the grain that was produced in Egypt. And then in chapter 41, verse 53, there's a, a shift. So look at these verses. Chapter 41 of Genesis, verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the land, in all lands, but in the, all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Just three things that I want to note from this very briefly. Three things. One, what Joseph said happened. I mean, to a T, right? If I'm Pharaoh in years five, six, seven, everything's going great, and I'm saying, did I just get fooled by this guy? Is there really a famine coming? But then in year eight, that skinny cow that he dreamed about showed up and started devouring the land, and famine spread everywhere. And what Joseph said happened. The second thing to note is how Joseph continues to bring glory to God. The way that Joseph continues to bring glory to God. When the famine happens and the people of Egypt have no food, who do they go to? They go to Pharaoh. That's the place you go, right? He's the king of Egypt, and he is a self-proclaimed god. And what does Pharaoh do? He sends everyone to Joseph. Go to Joseph. Joseph will solve your problem. And Joseph, who is the, the guy who wore his faith in the one true God on his sleeve and was just always talking about how God had prospered him, everyone comes to Joseph. And Joseph is the savior of all of Egypt. And you can hear him say, just as he said to Pharaoh, it's not in me. God has saved you. God has done this. And Joseph continues to glorify God. The other thing to note, the third thing, so we thought about how Joseph, what Joseph said happened, how Joseph continues to bring glory to God. And the next thing is the extent of this famine. Uh, 
the the extent of this famine. It's it's called severe multiple times. It talks about how it goes over all the land, and these things are continually brought up. It makes it clear that this is not just an Egyptian thing, but it's the whole world, meaning the whole ancient Near Eastern world. Everything that surrounded Egypt is in famine, including the land of Canaan. And so in chapter 42, we are brought back into the land of Canaan, into the story of Jacob and his other 11 sons. Remember, too, what's one of the key storylines of Genesis is the preservation of the promised seed. God said a seed would come through Abraham, and there's always threats to this seed. What's the threat here? Famine. That all of that Jacob and all his sons are going to die. What's going to happen? And we begin to see this broader picture at the end of 41, and now we zoom in on this family, the children of Israel, and see how their story fits into the broader picture. So we're going to read all of chapter 42. Let me give you a brief outline because it's a longer chapter just so you can kind of follow. Uh, verses 1 through 5, the setting is in Canaan, and the focus is a conversation between Jacob and his sons. So we begin in Canaan with Jacob and his sons. In verses 6 through 28, the setting is now Egypt, and the focus is on a conversation between Joseph and his brothers. And then in in verse 29 to the end of the chapter, in verse uh, 38, we go back to Canaan and we get another conversation between Jacob and his sons. So look with me at Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We are your servants. We, your, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. While you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, 
and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said, and Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. I want to walk through this story. It is so filled with with passion and with emotion. I want us to feel that. And then we're going to think on this big idea of allowing the light of conviction, welcoming the light of conviction into our lives. How do we do that? How do we welcome conviction in our lives? So we've seen this larger stream of humanity heading to Egypt, and now we see our friends, the children of Israel, join in this current, and they seek relief from the severe famine. Jacob initiates the whole thing in in verse 1. Maybe these brothers are indecisive. He sends them to Egypt with the notable exception of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin would have been in his 20s at this point. And surely, as a 20-year-old, he wants to go with his brothers. But we're told in verse 4 that Jacob feared something might happen happen to him. Having lost uh, Joseph, Benjamin represents sort of the last memory of his beloved Rachel, even the last memory of, of Joseph himself. And we see that after 20 years... Jacob has not forgotten the loss of his son. This is still a deep scar in his life. A tragedy like that, like losing a child, it causes deep wounds, it causes brokenness. And as Jacob said, when he first saw Joseph's torn, multicolored robe, he said, I will go down with this sorrow to the grave. I will, keep, I will be sorrowful over Joseph until I die. Jacob's keeping of Benjamin would have surely reminded the brothers of their brother Joseph. 
and this lie that they had continually lived with? You know, I wonder too, as they set off to Egypt, did they think about Joseph? Did they think about Joseph some 20 years beforehand making the same journey, but not of his own free will? As they rode away too, they didn't know it, but they were a lot like their father in this journey. You remember Jacob, after 20 years in Padan Aram, he goes back to Canaan, and he's forced to deal with the sin that he had committed against his brother Esau. Jacob knew that he would meet Esau, that he would be confronted with the sins of his past, but these brothers, they're doing the same thing, but they don't know what's going to hit them. That's how conviction is sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes you see it coming, and sometimes it comes out of nowhere. The narrative shifts to Egypt in verse 6, and we're reminded who Joseph is. He's the governor over the whole land. But we also find that he's not just some governor over top of everything, but that he's intimately involved in the the giving of grain. Um, He is there at the front. He's the guy that talks to everyone who comes and checks them out and says, you know, whether or not they're going to get grain and how much they will get. Every part of this scene in in Egypt is striking. I mean, it begins in verse 6. The brothers come before Joseph, and and you may have read right over it, but what do they do? They bow down. They bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground, and suddenly the dreams of Joseph that they had tried to kill have come true, and they didn't even know it. Joseph, no longer a youth, he's dressed in the garb of an Egyptian ruler. He's unrecognizable. We see later he has a, an interpreter. Um, he doesn't let them know that he knows Hebrew, which would have made him hard to recognize as well. His brothers don't know him, but Joseph knows his brothers. You know, I wonder if he even recognized them at the sound of their voice. Before he even turned and, and saw their faces, he heard them speaking and he knew who they were. And then he saw them bowing down before him, and he remembered his dreams, it says. Can you imagine? I mean, just imagine what's going on in Joseph. After all the pain, after all the years of being away from them, everything that they had caused in his life, and now here they are before him, bowing down. And the dream that he had waited years to see realized is now right before him. I'm sure he wanted to just burst out and reveal himself. I'm Joseph. But even though he recognizes them, he treats them as strangers. He speaks roughly to them. I think, you know, his reaction is so cool and calculated that I just have to think that he, he wondered, maybe this will happen. Maybe my brothers will come. Maybe that's why he wanted to be the guy there giving and receiving, giving the grain. And he knew what he was going to do if they ever showed up. They come, he accuses them of being spies. They deny it. They tell him they've just come for food. They provide all these details. They say a lot of things to Joseph. Let's play a little game. True-false quiz about what the brothers say to Joseph, okay? So I'll say a statement from verse 10, 11, or 13, and you tell me whether or not it's true or false, okay? Everybody has to participate. They say, your servants have come to buy food. True. We are all sons of one man. True, not all sons of one woman, but all sons of one man. We are honest men. False, does Yeah, right, right. Okay. Your servants have never been spies. True, as far as we know, right? We are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. True. 
The youngest is this day with our father. True. One of our brothers is no more. False. He's standing right in front of him. You know that statement that we kind of said, eh, we are honest men? I think that's key. I think that's the key to this passage. It's in large part the truth or the falsehood of that statement that Joseph is trying to test. Not as a ruler in Egypt, but as a brother who had been wronged. The first test that he comes up with for their honesty, are you honest men? Is in verses 15 to 16. He says, everyone stays here. And you send one guy to go get your brother, Benjamin, and bring him here. What does it know his name is Benjamin? Go get your youngest brother and bring him back. Why? He says that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. He gives them that test, and then he throws them all in prison for three days. Alan Ross comments, he says, The scene provides a complication of the plot that parallels chapter 37. The oppressed became the oppressor. The spy, remember he's going to look at his brothers, the spy accused the brothers of being spies. And the one who had been thrown into prison by his brothers put them into prison. And after those three days in prison, Joseph modifies his test. Rather than keeping them all and sending one, he says he will keep one brother in custody. And the rest will take grain back to their families and then bring the youngest brother back to Egypt as a sign that they're telling the truth, that they are honest men. And in verse 20 it says they agreed to do this. You think about Joseph's new plan. Joseph is filled with compassion. He knows that these brothers, they represent wives, they represent children, not to mention his own father and his brother. They represent his family that he has not seen. And so he sends nine of the brothers home. He says, I'll give you nine men to carry food back to your families. But the test becomes even more poignant, I think, because Joseph is testing their honesty. Are they the men, are they men who will tell the truth? But he's also testing their compassion. He is compassionate to them. Are they compassionate? You think about it. Long ago, they had left their brother in a pit and offered him no compassion. We find that he cried and he begged for mercy, but they offered him none. They spared his life, but they sold him for their own gain. And he wants to know, are you guys going to do it again? You got what you needed. You got what you came for. You got your grain. Are you going to leave Simeon here? Are you going to come back? Or are you going to do what you did to me and forsake him and show no compassion? Now, these brothers, I mean, they have lived with their guilt for over 20 years. Maybe the third year of the famine, so we could think about 22, 23 years. For 20 years, they had kept the truth hidden. For 20 years, they had deceived their father. And now, in God's sovereign plan, they are standing before their brother. And God is using the famine. He's using the actions of Joseph to do what? to bring conviction into the lives of these men. He's let them live for 20 years. And now he is revealing the wickedness of their heart. The light of conviction is shining brightly into their lives, and they know it. I think the words of 21, this scene where the brothers are talking amongst themselves and brother and Joseph knows what they're saying, that's amazing, isn't it? It's so powerful. After three days in prison, they're on the cusp of leaving one of their brothers in an Egyptian prison, and they say these words, we are guilty. I wonder if that's the first time they ever said that. We are guilty. They've been put into the place that their brother had been. They have been bound. They have been treated harshly. They have been falsely accused. 
And as they wrestle with the sin in their souls, they're reminded of the cries of Joseph. That's what they bring up. They bring up the cries of Joseph and that they didn't listen to him, how he cried out and they ignored him. I just wonder if they never forgot those cries of their their brother. I mean, that sound of him screaming from that pit for mercy, did that just sort of echo in their minds? Is that what woke them up in the middle of the night? Joseph, when he weeps, turns and goes to another room. I have to wonder if he hadn't, if his weeping would have given him away. If the brothers would have heard those cries and they said, I know who that is. I remember that as clear as day, 20 years later. Reuben, we gave him a hard time back in chapter 37, but he's right when he says, I told you guys not to do this. And now we're going to pay for our sins. This is the reckoning for his blood. Reuben had warned them. Whatever his motives, he had tried to rescue his brother, and no one listened to him. Joseph hears this conversation, and he's moved to tears, but he still wonders, have they changed? The text tells us that they saw Simeon. Simeon was bound before them. And you can almost hear them in this moment say, Simeon, we will come back. We won't make the same mistake again. We're not going to do it again. And Simeon, as it were, says, don't leave me here. Let's not do this again. Joseph is testing them, and he adds some fuel to this furnace of testing. He puts all their money that they're supposed to pay for their grain back into their sacks, sort of just to mess with them, it feels like. And they discover it on their journey, and they say to one another, what do they say? What is this that God has done to us? Not what did that governor in Egypt do to us? What has God done to us? They've gone, they, they, all they have gone through has made them aware that this is not the governor of Egypt that is, is testing them. God is testing them. Something supernatural is happening here. God is confronting them with their sin. And the confrontation is not over. They come home and Jacob sees them coming from afar and he counts his children. And every time he counts, he gets to nine. And there's one of them missing again. They show up and they say what happened, how they were accused by the Lord of the land. He tested uh, their honesty. They needed to take Benjamin with them. And then they all open up uh, their sacks and, and they are filled with fear, every single one of them, Jacob included, when they see that all the money that they had paid for the grain is now back in their sacks. The brothers whose hearts have been in their stomachs for days, you can imagine that trip home would be miserable. And their father, in verse 36, he says, 36, he says, as it were, twice. Two times, you guys come back and you bring me news that one of my children is no more. First it was Joseph, and now it's Simeon, and now you want to take Benjamin with you? And he says, no, <laughs> never. Every time you leave, every time you leave, you come back with one of my kids missing, and I am not letting you leave with Benjamin. And then he turns, and what does he say there? Uh, It's in verse... um, I'm sorry, it's in in verse uh, 36. At the end, he says, All this has come against me. All this has come against me. It's, It's my fault, he says. Jacob still looks at the sins of his past, at his failures... And he considers that the reason for all of this is him. I did something wrong. 
He's completely in the dark. And his sons know. What did they say back in Egypt? Why did it happen? This happened because of what we did. And Jacob is there saying, it's because of something I've done. And they let their father sit in his guilt. Reuben could have confessed. Instead, he makes some crazy vow in verse 37. And Jacob refuses to accept it. And he resolves, I will never let you take Benjamin out of my sight. You know, I look at that guilt of Jacob. And as we think about conviction of sin, there, there is false conviction. There, there is a guilt that we can have. We assume that the pain or the problems in our lives are because of our own sin, something we've done wrong, when in actuality, it's the result of the sin of others. That's true. But I think more than that, Jacob's distress is just one more arrow of conviction that is meant to pierce the hearts of these brothers, to show them how their deception, their selfishness, their sin has brought pain into their lives And it's brought massive pain into their father's life. For 20 plus years he's dealt with this guilt, thinking it's his fault. After 20 years, God is giving these children of Israel a gift. It's the gift of the blazing, burning light of conviction. And it's the gift of true guilt. Just remember, it happened to their father too. Remember when he goes to visit Laban? And everything that happens to Laban mirrors what he did to Esau. And all of that is held up as a mirror on his life so that he can see how much he hurt him. And now these brothers are being forced to see and to feel the weight of their sin, the pain of not being listened to, of being thrown in prison, of being falsely accused, of being helpless. And all of that reveals the sin of their hearts. They are convicted and they see their guilt. And we come to the end of the chapter, and there's a cliffhanger. What's going to happen to Simeon? I mean, Jacob is clear. Benjamin will never leave my sight. Will will he ever give in on that? Will Simeon be saved? Will these brothers ever come clean about what they've done? Uh, Even in this cliffhanger, though, I think we learn a lot. And this, this call to welcome the light of conviction into our lives. Let let me give you eight lessons from how these brothers acted that will help us to see how we can welcome the light of conviction into our lives. Eight sounds like a big number. They'll be brief. uh, And for further discussion in small groups and um, with each other. Number one, live life before the face of God. Live life before the face of God. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It was back in chapter 39. Remember, we saw how Joseph lived his life quorum Deo. He lived it before God's face, resting in God's sovereignty, remembering his presence, living a life of integrity. And even this, in this passage, Joseph is the one guy who says, I fear God. I fear God. The brothers are afraid of God, <laughs> of what he's doing in large part because they've tried to forget God. They've tried to run from conviction for 20 years. But if they would have lived before God's face, things would have been different. And if we would live before God's face, then we would have a short record of sins before him. We'll be like Joseph. In temptation, we will say, how could I do this evil and sin against God? And when we do sin, we'll be like David who said, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we live in a constant awareness of God's presence. We are convicted in the midst of temptation 
and conviction comes quickly when we do sin and we are quick to confess. Live life before the face of God. Second, live life in the presence of others. Live life in the presence of others. Louis Brandeis is a Louisville native, a former Supreme Court justice. He wrote this, Sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants. Electric light, the most efficient policeman. In other words, living in the light kills evil. Living in the, in the presence of others keeps us from sin. If someone is, my, my parents had someone break into their house. You know what the first thing they did was? Installed big lights on the back of the house. Because electric light is the most efficient policeman. These brothers avoided the light. They sinned in a far country. And then they probably made a pact. They said, let's never mention the name Joseph ever again. I think some of us have made that pact, whether on purpose or just through the course of our lives, to never talk about our sins, to never talk about our shortcomings in front of other people, to put a mask on, to play the part of someone who has everything together, but a life that is, is free from a life free from guilt is lived in the presence of others. It's, it's lived in this recognition that we are weak and we fail and we need other people because other people are weak and they fail too. We as God's people, we're, we're called as fellow sinners to live lives of transparency before others, to live in the light, before our spouses and our families, before our small group and our, our friends. You need someone to be honest with, someone that you can say, the hard things to if these brothers just would have felt like they could speak this out to someone and confess it and lived in the presence of others rather than in this cloister where they held everything so close these two big ideas living life before the face of god and living life in the presence of others those are kind of the big ones okay i'm giving you eight but those could probably be the heading and these other ones stem from that but let me give you a third one which is confess sin quickly how do we live, how do we welcome the light of conviction in our lives? We confess sin quickly. The pain of holding on to this secret for 20 years had to be worse. It had to be worse than the pain of confessing it to their father 20-some years earlier. And dealing with it. The pain of holding on to our sin is worse than the pain of confessing it. Pain of holding on to our sin is worse than the pain of confessing it. Now, I say that, and it's really easy to say, but it's really hard to do. It feels so much easier to live in the dark and to not tell people what we struggle with. But if we would determine now to confess our sins quickly to God and to others, we will know that the, the peace of God, and we can see the conviction that God brings, and it will be grace to us. We'll say, I'm so glad that God's not letting me sit in my sin. Charles Spurgeon said, God will never have great chastisements, great discipline, you might say. God will never have great chastisements in store for those who are quick confessors of sin. It's good. Live before God's face. Live in the presence of others. Confess your sins quickly. Cultivate a heart of compassion. That's the fourth. Cultivate a heart of compassion. 
the brothers look back on their actions, and what do they remember? They remember the way Joseph cried, and they didn't listen. They remember their lack of compassion. I think time has helped that, and I think time helps us to be more compassionate people. I think these guys probably have sons. One of them might have a 17-year-old son. And they look back on that thing and they think, what if someone did that to my son? How would I feel? It's good to walk in other people's shoes, to have compassion. We need to be people who extend grace over and over and over to others. And the people who we want to judge, who we want to yell at, who we want to put down, the people that we want to hurt, we need to look at them and say, that's me. I see their sin in me. We need to cultivate this heart of compassion. Five, listen to the counsel of others. Listen to the counsel of others. Real brief on this. They should have listened to Reuben, right? God often guards us from our sin, and he brings conviction of sin through others. When those who love you and who are close to you tell you, don't do that, you should listen. (laughs) When they try to pull you away from actions that would be done in anger or in lust or in greed, listen to them. God used the evil that happened, and and he, he turned it all for good. But he could have still saved his children from that famine without Joseph having gone to Egypt. He found another way to do it. Okay, So they should have listened to Reuben. Listen to counsel of others. Six, consider how sin hurts others. Again, we're thinking about how do we welcome conviction? How do we see the conviction of our sin and the guilt of our sin as something beautiful? Consider how sin hurts others. You know, we look into the eyes of Jacob and you think about what his sons have put him through. And then when we sin, we look into the eyes of a spouse or of a a child or of a, a church or of our parents or of our friends and we think how my sin doesn't happen in some sort of vacuum there is no such thing as victimless sin even if I keep it hidden for my whole life even if no one knows about it people are still affected by it just the stress alone of unconfessed sin wreaks havoc in our lives and in our relationships how much pain happened in 20 years just because these brothers had 10% of their brain always thinking, I can't let my dad figure this out. I can't believe we did that to Joseph. Consider how sin hurts others. Number seven, remember that a reckoning day will come. Remember that a reckoning day will come. So Reuben says, this has happened this is a reckoning for, our, for the blood that we shed. This is a day that we are being held accountable for what we did. And for all of us, 100%, there's a reckoning day coming. A day when we will stand not before some governor in Egypt, but when we will stand before the ruler of the whole universe. We will come before God himself. And like Joseph's brothers, we will all bow down with our faces to the ground. Every person. And there will be a reckoning. We will be judged for the deeds that we have done and not done. For our idle words, for our idle hands. 
the books described in Revelation will be opened. The books of what we have done on this earth. And we will be laid bare before the God who knows everything. Do we live in light of that day? Do we think about that? Of the fact that you can run and you can hide your whole life and you can take every secret you have, you can take it all the way to the grave. But here's the problem. The grave isn't the end. Because one day we will stand on that appointed day and everything will be made known. Now, it's good to remember that. It's good to rightly fear God. But out of that fear, here's the wrong thing to say. I'm just going to work harder so that on that day I look more presentable to God. Yeah, I've done wrong things, but maybe maybe all the good that I do can sort of outweigh that bad. Or maybe there'll just be some sort of balance in the end and God will be gracious. That's the wrong response. Because the problem isn't just our sin. (laughs) Here's what the Bible tells us. Our righteousness, our good deeds are like filthy rags too. Which is why these brothers, standing on their reckoning day, guilty before Joseph, their judge, remind us that the light of conviction can be welcomed. Not because it causes us to turn and we'll be better now, but the light of conviction can be welcomed because Jesus, the light of the world, has come to save us. So remember the reckoning day, but eighth and most important, rest in the finished work of Jesus. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. The light of conviction doesn't lead us to work harder, to make ourselves cleaner, but rather it should lead us to lean all the more on Jesus. On the day of reckoning, our works will not save us. They can't. Only the work of Jesus can. Jesus who paid the penalty for all of our sin by living the perfect life and then dying in our place. Have you ever had a moment like these brothers before God? Where you've been convicted of your sins before a holy God? You've come to some sort of day of reckoning or realized that there is a day of reckoning and you see the way that you have rebelled against God? And the way that you've harmed others. And if that's happened, have you found salvation through confessing those sins and trusting in the work of Christ? If not, there is hope for forgiveness through confession of our sins, through letting the light of the gospel shine and reveal our dark hearts and then allowing the work of Christ to give us a new heart trusting that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and he's come and risen from the dead to give us new life. And if you have, then I would invite you this morning to rest again in the finished work of Jesus, to welcome the light of conviction. And then when it comes, let it be something that causes you to run to Jesus because Jesus has borne our sin in his body, and shed his blood so that we can be washed clean. I came to a point on Friday night studying this passage that it was something where I I said, there's so much conviction. What is the response? The response is to, yes, I'm as sinful as these brothers, but Jesus 
has forgiven me. And that's where we go. We go to the cross. When conviction comes, we can welcome the light of conviction because we know that we have forgiveness through Christ. And so we come to him and we rest. And on that Friday, I just wanted to take communion. (laughs) I've been waiting since Friday to take communion. Not because the bread and the cup save me. They don't. But what a wonderful reminder that we rest in the finished work of Christ. That all the conviction of my sin comes, not so that I will try harder, but so that I will remember that Jesus has paid the penalty and I can have forgiveness through him. And so, if you've put your faith in Jesus and you have evidenced that through the waters of baptism, baptism doesn't save you, but you have shown the world that you truly have put your faith in Christ through baptism, then I want you to come to the table this morning and remember Jesus. That we would remember that the light of conviction that has pierced our hearts and the salvation that has come through Christ and then rejoice in the fact that we have been found in him. And on the day of reckoning, we will stand in Christ.